So um, first, I I wanted to say I don't know if people on Zoom can really can you guys see me? Yeah, I can okay. see you. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's right. Because camera. Sorry. So first, I wanted to thank Jim for um, asking me to take this on and for suggesting that I include some of my poems. I hear an echo. Is this really loud? Okay. Um, the process of putting this together has required quite a bit of reflection and effort, and it's been a good exercise. And I'd also like to thank Dora Lee, who provided me with wise counsel when I was stuck on how to organize this story, and also for the term embodied experience, which I've made good use of, as you will find out. I also want to thank everyone who has given one of these talks before me, because I've learned so much from everybody who's done that. And also to express my gratitude to the Sangha, which I rely on and hope to serve. <clears throat> so I'm going to include some of my poems in this talk. Um, but first, I wanted to read a poem from uh, a book. It's called Women in Praise of the Sacred. It's 43 centuries of women's uh, sacred writings. Um, it's edited by Jane Hirschfield, who is one of the preeminent um, poets in America today and who has, um, she has a very deep spiritual practice. This is a poem uh, by someone who is just called Hadwidge II. They don't really know who this person was. Hadwidge of Antwerp, who lived in the 1300s, was a Beguine nun. And um, there's little known about her, but they do have works from her. and. When they discovered her works, they found in one of her notebooks that there were a set of 13 poems in a different hand and with a different tone and by, they assumed a different person. Not having any idea who this person was, they've called her Hadwitch too. And I just thought this is a very, very short poem, so I'll read it twice. And it's quite beautiful. <clears throat> and for us Zen practitioners, the imagery will um, be very striking. You who want knowledge, seek the oneness within. There you will find the clear mirror already waiting. You who want knowledge, seek the oneness within. There you will find the clear mirror already waiting. So, um, I'm not sure how I came to Buddhist practice. It's actually a bit of a mystery. Throughout my life, I felt this pull towards something, something larger than me and larger than humanity, but not the god of my childhood. As a teenager, I read Siddhartha and other books that follow concepts of Eastern religions, which I found fascinating. In my 20s, I briefly practiced Wing Chun Kung Fu, which also inspired more interest in Eastern philosophies particularly Taoism, but those were just teasers. I did not pursue those ideas. In trying to put this story together, <clears throat> it has also brought back memories of existential experiences I had that are no doubt similar to experiences that other people have had, experiences in which one is confronted by one's own smallness and the vastness of the universe. As an older teen and young adult, these experiences caused vertigo and a tremendous sense of dislocation. 
At that time of life, I did not have the perspective or a way to contextualize those experiences and instead spent many years trying to establish some sort of control over my life. I found myself in cult-like structures that could contain while I also was conversely exploring poetry, martial arts, acupuncture, yoga, and other pursuits that demanded openness and confrontation with the unknown. As I thought about this story, three events come to mind. While not in any way a linear explanation of how I arrived here, they mark my journey. I will also read three poems which are proximal to the story, um, but Poetry is the best way I can express what I have to say, and so I'm going to include them and offer them as well. <clears throat> but before getting to those experiences, I thought you might like a little background about me. I was raised in a Jewish household in Seattle. I have four brothers and sisters. Our family belonged to a Reformed Jewish temple, which at that time was considered the most relaxed of the mainstream American Jewish traditions. My father was a physician and researcher, and while not overly religious, was far more devout than my mother, who in those days stated firmly that she did not believe in God or religion. However, they both felt it was important that we learn about our heritage and understand who we were. So twice a week, we attended Hebrew school after regular public school and also on Sunday mornings. Additionally, we did not go to school on the Jewish high holidays and were not allowed to participate in the Christmas shows and Easter celebrations that were the norm in public schools in the 60s and beyond. My mother and her parents were refugees from Hitler's Germany, and there were many people in our parents' circle who were also refugees or Holocaust survivors. Our family lived with this unspoken trauma. We knew the barest outline of the story and also knew, as if by osmosis, that we were not to ask about it. Like many Jewish families of the post-World War II period, even though personal Holocaust or related experiences were not discussed, current events, whether local, statewide, national, or global, were frequent topics of conversation. I understood early that politics are not something that happens over there, but that one's life will be deeply impacted by and could completely depend on who runs a government or country, especially if you belong to any kind of a minority group. Our parents valued music and the arts, and we were provided with many opportunities to see, hear, and engage with them. One of my brothers became a professional musician. I have an affiliation for poetry and have been writing poems since I was about nine or 10 years old. Even as a young child, there was something in that way of expression that was natural and made sense to me. I was particularly attracted to the rhythm and music of poetic language. Additionally, our parents were enthusiastic mountain climbers, and we spent many weekends and vacations hiking and climbing in the Cascades. I was privileged to enjoy these seminal exposures as a child, and that has informed much of my life. At the same time, my mother, who had three children in quick succession, struggled with the demands of an infant, an 18-month-old toddler, and a three-and-a-half-year-old. She was not able to nurture me in the way I needed, and this too informed the rest of my life. In junior high, I began to become politically involved. It was the late 60s, and the campaign to end the Vietnam War was at its height. Women were demanding rights. The civil rights movement was morphing into the black power movement. Change was in the air. I was fascinated by hippies. 
I attended peace marches and worked with other students to break the dress code at our school. Girls had to wear dresses. We couldn't wear pants, even in winter snow, and we greatly objected to that. The trial of the Chicago 7 took place when I was about 13. I vividly recall the newspaper coverage and drawings, which were shocking. I was beside myself at the unfairness, at the echoes of slavery, and the images of a black man bound and gagged in a U.S. courtroom. At the time, a judge was like a small king. No one could correct him. I saw that there was something profoundly wrong with our systems and wanted to change them for the better. About the same time, 13 years or so old, I went to see the movie Z with a friend, and the short that played with it was Night and Fog. Night and Fog is a graphic description, a documentary, sorry, of the Nazi atrocities in the concentration camps. It was the first time I saw a film of the Holocaust. Knowing that I was seeing the uncared for, murdered bodies of relations, perhaps actual blood relatives, was horrifying. I was deeply disturbed, and my understanding of God was completely undone. I could not accept that an omniscient, all-powerful God could allow that to happen. At my parents' insistence, I continued in Hebrew school through my confirmation at age 16. And while the rabbi tried to answer my questions, I did not find relief in his words. My interest in politics continued through high school and into college, where I learned more of people's history and about cooperative social movements, socialism, communism, etc. I traveled to the East Coast as part of a travel study group sponsored by my college, worked in a community school, which today is a private school, and when others went back west to finish college, I stayed. I became more involved in more radical politics and joined a far-left group. I would stay involved for about eight years on the East Coast and the West. I made a lot of good friends, people like me who were well-intentioned, could see the glaring inequities in our system, had a strong sense of fairness and wanted to do something about it. Eventually, I married and had a son. The world soon became less black and white, more complex, and I had to rethink how I wanted to be, what I wanted to model for my child. And as I said earlier, it is a bit of a mystery to me as how I came to Buddhism. But what follows is the first of the three events that I want to share with you. When I was 17, I had uh, an embodied experience. What happened was not just in my consciousness, my mind, but in my body. Of course, mind and body are not separate, even though we Westerners make them two through our ideas and speech. I was riding my bike to work going down a hill rather quickly. A car was passing me, and when I saw another car coming up the hill, I was overwhelmed by fear that there would not be room for all of us, and I hit the brakes. The bike skidded into a curb, and I went over the handlebars. What was remarkable about that was that once I left the bike, I experienced no fear whatsoever. I was completely aware I was going to die, and I was completely at peace and thought, oh, so this is what it's like to die. And it was as if I was watching a movie of myself. I saw scenes from my life, and I saw myself floating through the air. Luckily for me, and as you can see, I did not die, though I was injured, including a very serious concussion. There were no bike helmets back then, but I wore my rock climbing helmet while biking, and it was a good thing, as I surely would have been dead or brain damaged without it. And I still have a great big scar from that. 
the lack of fear, the total acceptance in the moment was arresting, something I've never forgotten. And I wish I could tell you that my life changed significantly after that, that I became an aware person, that my spirituality shone like a beacon, but uh, that did not happen. Any changes that occurred were not part of my conscious understanding. This was the beginning. I was 17. I simply had this experience of death, peace, acceptance, and fearlessness. Um, this is a poem I wrote many, many years later about fear. What if we were without fear and dropped like leaves spinning down river, the sky a world, faith suspending us the miles traveled to mouth the bay, its turbulent waters? What could be possible if our prismatic view were broken and leaf-like we flew where the wind blew, pliable as petals? The second experience occurred when I was 35. Sure. Sure. What if we were without fear and dropped like leaves, spinning down river, the sky a whirl, faith suspending us the miles traveled to mouth the bay, its turbulent waters? What could be possible if our prismatic view were broken and leaf-like we flew where the wind blew, pliable as petals? Oh, the second experience. So this happened when I was 35. I was upset about something, not sure and I, don't, I actually don't remember what. It was probably something at work or something in my marriage. But whatever it was, I was focused on the story in my mind and distracted as I walked, not really paying attention to what was around me. I stepped into a crosswalk and was hit by a car as it turned left through the intersection. Another bodily shock. My knee was injured. Hoping to avoid surgery, I went to see an acupuncturist named Vince Black who was able to fix the knee. He was also a martial artist, and there was something about the way he moved in the world and the people who worked with him that made me want to know more. So I started studying martial arts with him. Among other forms, Vince taught Xing Yi and Ba Kwa, both internal forms with tremendous focus on breath. It was all about paying attention, particularly to the body. Before I knew it, I had enrolled in acupuncture school and was learning healing arts as well. Taoism and Eastern philosophies became a much more prominent part of my focus. I began to pay more attention to everything in my life. I've had the good fortune to have met many, many amazing teachers. People I ran into because of some random accident, like the one that I just described, or by the luck of the draw. I followed them, and my path diverged from the one I'd been on. There were so many teachers and so much to learn. Even the bad experiences have been good. Without them, I might not be here today. Around the same time as this accident, maybe a few months prior, uh, because I was around a lot of people who had problems with alcohol addiction, I began attending Al-Anon meetings. This was the first unambiguously identified spiritual program I was involved in as an adult. There I began to learn the basics of living a consciously ethical life, which required far more thought, 
patience, openness, and change than I could have imagined. It was amazing to learn that even though I stood up for a lot of good causes, I was not always living ethically. Years later, while I no longer attend Al-Anon, I still feel I'm trying to integrate fully into my life the principles I began to learn there. Life went on. My spouse's career brought us from San Diego to Sacramento in 1994. We became embedded in this community. I practiced yoga, was writing, worked at several places until I found a great position at the Community College League of California where I stayed for 10 years. Our son grew up, went off to college, and moved back to San Diego. I started hiking again, something I had not pursued for a long time and was thrilled to become familiar with the Sierras. Life was not always easy, not always satisfactory, but things were rolling along. And as many of you know, when the kid moves out, a whole new world opens up. So this is another poem I wrote. Um, this is called At Elevation. And it was, um, I was uh, backpacking up near Lake Evelyn, which is, Lake Evelyn's at 10,300 feet. Um, to get there, you have to go up a little higher to go over the pass to drop down to it. Feldspars drop from the Milky Way. Stars break free of black granite and light lines of quartz mark time until the alpine glow has gone from gold to dusky blue. Bright with minarets and spires, the imagination heads north, turning the meadow to tundra to the low growing vegetation that disappears into the exploded dark glass of the sea. The sea whose roughness is the winds and whose blown spume does not rest or breathe. Here, where autumn has only begun to sigh, where heat rises, as does the dust of decomposed rock, where wind scrapes over the Lyle Glacier and carries forward the promise of silence, the galaxy appears as a clouded thickness in love with expansive night. Do you want me to read that again? Okay. At elevation, feldspars drop from the Milky Way, stars break free of black granite, and light lines of quartz mark time until the alpine glow has gone from gold to dusky blue. Bright with the minarets and spires, the imagination heads north, turning the meadow to tundra to the low-growing vegetation that disappears into the exploded dark glass of the sea, the sea whose roughness is the winds and whose blown spume does not rest or breathe. Here, where autumn has only begun to sigh, where heat rises, as does the dust of decomposed rock, where wind scrapes over the Lyle Glacier and carries forward the promise of silence, the galaxy appears as a clouded thickness in love with expansive night. Late in 2007, we learned that Matt, my spouse, was being considered for a position that would require a move to the DC area. Before any of that came to fruition, I was diagnosed with cancer, which was the third experience that marks my path. This was not like the bike accident. It was much slower, and I was terrified I would die. 
For me, it was also an identity crisis. No one in my family, not even my at the time 80-something-year-old parents, had any chronic diseases. There was no known history of cancer in the family. Being sick in this way just did not fit who I understood myself to be. It felt shameful. Everything was destabilized, disorganized, and a mess. And I heard this voice straight out of Shakespeare, get thee to a nunnery, get thee to a nunnery. It was the strangest thing. Obviously, I had to deal with the cancer, get treatment, etc. But I was also clearly being called upon to change. On the practical side, after much investigation and for a variety of reasons, I opted for treatment at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. The doctors there were confident they could heal me, so I encouraged Matt to take on the new position in DC. I was welcomed into the home of friends who hosted me during my long stay in Seattle. One of them, Ed, someone I've known since I was 15, practiced Zen meditation. Because my anxiety level was high, Ed suggested I might find meditation helpful. He took me to a beginning meditation class taught by Rodney Smith, a former Buddhist monk and hospice worker, a practitioner of insight meditation. This was a wonderful class. Smith outlined what to expect while meditating, which really was reassuring. I started sitting with a Rinzai Sangha that Ed was involved with. The first time I heard the deep bell rung, I felt struck. I realized I was home in a way that was new to me and wonderful. Something was calling me, something was there for me, so I stuck with it. At the end of 2009, I moved to DC to be with Matt. I completed treatment there with a standard six-week round of radiation. Once I recovered enough physically from all the treatments, I reestablished my yoga practice, engaged in a yoga teacher training, and found a group in DC to sit with. It was an interesting sangha, as half the members were Soto and the other half were Rinzai. So we alternated sitting facing the wall and facing the interior of the circle. And I learned that it's a good thing sometimes to have a conversation with the wall. In 2013, we moved back to Sacramento. And not long after that, I started sitting with Valley Streams. I have not found a nunnery, but my practice has deepened. And then I'd like to end with uh, this poem. This is called Approaching the Mountain, and this is after a hike at Grants Park in the Cascades in 2004. <clears throat> this was with my parents and one of my sisters. This is the usual scene. We argue in the car, each one e eager and irritable, transitioning to this other familiar, a vastness that makes minuscule our most muscular efforts to navigate the uncertainties of even a well-pathed wildness. And the questions we gnaw on, am I on time? Is this the right way? Have I packed all I need? We are distracted when what matters is a few steps from the road, a path winds upward, and the sky opens its gifts to any who pass beneath it. Should I read that again? Okay. Approaching the mountain. This is the usual scene. We argue in the car, each one eager and irritable, transitioning to this other familiar, a vastness that makes minuscule our most muscular efforts to navigate the uncertainties of even a well-pathed wilderness. And the questions we gnaw on, am I on time? Is this the right way? Have I packed all I need? We are distracted 
when what matters is a few steps from the road, a path winds upward, and the sky opens its gifts to any who pass beneath it. So thank you for listening. Yes, this is the time to ask um, Jody questions or just express your your thoughts or feelings. And Barry would like to speak. Thank you. It was a very nice talk. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you, you worked with Chisan Roshi, right? Pardon? Chisan, you worked with Chisan Roshi. Can you talk a little bit about meeting her and what your practice was like with her a little bit? Um, so uh, Chisan is... Uh, uh, Daichi Roshi. Um, she is also, um, her American name is Patri- Patricia, P- Priscilla Strodent. And um, I met her in Seattle at Ed's house. Um, uh, and she she's this amazing, amazing woman. Um, she went to Japan in probably in the, in the 60s and just searching, searching, looking for someone, and ended, ended up um, practicing with um, Mumon Roshi. Uh, I don't think they were at Sogenji then, but they might have been. I can't remember. And, um, you know, just followed that path. And um, uh, she is a, a Zen Buddhist priest and a woman of incredible faith incredible, incredible faith. And she'll actually be giving a talk on the evening of, um, I think it's March 27th, which is a Friday, um, via Zoom. And if anyone's interested, I can um, uh, get the Zoom link to you and um, you can check her out yourself. Okay, well, then it's the Friday prior, it's the 24th, maybe, whatever that is. I'll get the details to you guys. She, she, she was ill recently, and um, so she's, this is the first time in several months that she's teaching again. She's the abbot or abbess of Tahoma, which is, um, so her, her Muman Roshi, Roshi's passed away, but uh, Shoto Harada Roshi is her teacher, and um, uh, they have many sanghas now, actually all over the world. Um, and she's the abbess of Tahoma, uh, which is on Whidbey Island, and one, the uh, Water Moon uh, sangha in Seattle. What was it like to sit with her? Oh, she's amazing. I don't, I don't know how to describe that. <laughs> one follow-up question, if that's okay. Um, did you do? Um... Is it Shoshokan? You say it, the extended out-breath practice with them? Say what? Did, I can't remember the Japanese name, but the extended out-breath breathing. Did you work on that with them? Um, I, she showed that to me, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really like that last poem. Uh, it's so uh, um, reminiscent of that experience of um, dropping off body and mind when you go into the wilderness, you know, and, 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 you know, you start, you, you, you take up, you know, into 
the wilderness what you you know what you're what's happening and your art you mentioned the you know, quarreling or that sort of thing and then like just stepping out just stepping on the path it's it's it starts to change quickly it was really reminiscent of like my experience years ago of going like solo backpacking and um, sometimes off the trail and just uh, stepping out into that vastness that you uh, mentioned at the end. Very, it was a really good. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm praising your poem. Thank you. <laughs> Excuse me for praising your poem, but I, for me, that poem uh, really captured what you, um, you know, I knew what you meant very much. You know. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for that poem. Well, I have to follow up because I, I share Jim's sentiments completely on that last poem. It really captured me. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, I'm not sure if I get your what you were trying to convey, but to me, you know, people talk about being in the mountains, and it's like your first two poems, in a sense, the vastness of nature around you. But but you were going into like your own mind as you do the transition. So it was really, you know, I don't recall, you know, when people talk about the mountains, they're not always talking about that, that, that transition. So it was unique in that sense, and I really appreciated it. I don't remember, you know, I just don't, I was thinking about, I didn't realize you have been practicing here since 2013, 14. Somewhere in there, yeah. And I distinctly remember some of the people in the Sangha, where I met them and where it was and what. I have no, I have no recollection. But but just like you've you've been here for. Yeah. But I was it wasn't consistent through that. You maybe know. Maybe that's what it. Yeah, so it was. wasn't consistent for a while. Yeah. I would come and then I would not come. You, you sneakily appeared into my life. <laughs> Thank you for your talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you. No comments from Sue? Yeah. Oh. Anyone on, on Zoom, um, if you could raise your hand or put up the hand. Hmm. They're all here. This is good. <laughs> well, I just, I, I appreciated the going into such depth about your, your Jewish heritage and your childhood as, you know, knowing that your family were survivors of the Holocaust and yet not, no one would talk about it and just how that's such an, such an issue now for many people and even for you to talk about it here felt yeah. important. Yeah. Thank you. It's a very common experience, you know, that people uh, who've lived through any kind of trauma generally tend not to talk about it, which is unfortunate because it's very helpful to to talk about that, but um, you know, back in those days, there wasn't um, 
nowadays there would be more opportunities for support to talk about things like that, but back then there really wasn't. It was really a different world. And we have, we're so much more privileged today to, to be able to um, delve into those things in a, in a kind of an open way, an open-hearted way. Yeah.